if you ache for truth, goodness, and beauty, if you're hungry for a Christianity with substance and strength, if you long for a faith that's big and bold and biblical and all about Jesus Christ, if you're inspired by the idea of one church that has spanned 20 centuries, 24 time zones, and two hemispheres, enfolding every race, nation, and language, then you're considering Catholicism. What became known as the Protestant Reformation was launched in 1517, when an unknown monk in Germany named Martin Luther nailed a list of 95 grievances against the Catholic Church under the door of Wittenberg Cathedral. Luther had a lot of complaints, some with some merit and some that were a bit ridiculous, but the Protestant Reformation almost immediately spun out in every direction, affecting almost every aspect of the church. But initially, and centrally, Protestantism was driven by a question. How exactly are we saved? And it came to answer that question in ways that were very different than the answers offered by the Catholic Church. Now, over the last 500 years, a lot of the misunderstandings have been addressed, and Catholics and Protestants don't feel as far apart on this question as they did a few centuries ago. But still, the Protestant origin story is grounded in, well, it's grounded in mythology and misunderstanding about the historic Catholic answer to the question, how are we saved? As a Protestant with a Reformational background, I eventually came to believe that Protestantism had replaced the historic apostolic understanding of how we are saved with, well, doctrinal confusion and spiritual anxiety. And that drove me to investigate the Catholic position that my tradition had, well, had so distorted and vilified. Now, my Protestant friend Ed, who regular listeners have gotten to know, is working through the same questions that I once had and considering Catholicism as an alternative. So we sat down one afternoon and had a long conversation about how we can know that we are saved, whether we can lose our salvation, and the comfort that comes from living a Catholic life. I've broken this up into three episodes, a sort of mini-series on Protestant versus Catholic understandings and experiences of being saved in Christ. In this first installment, we talk about the anxiety that seems inherent in Protestant understandings of salvation versus the comfort that comes with Catholicism. Welcome to Church Chats with Greg and Ed, where Greg and his Protestant friend Ed chat about the church. Okay, so last time we did this, we were standing around talking afterwards, and I said something, and you said, ooh, 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 we have to talk about it next time. And we started talking about it a little bit, but then I think we sort of agreed that we wouldn't talk about it anymore so that we could talk about it, you know. So was it like a secret topic, or we just deferred it? No, we just deferred it. it okay, was, it was yeah, a yeah. secret. So this is, this is not like a secret thing. No, 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 no. The thing I said was... Secret knowledge or anything the, like that. No, no, I don't have any of that. <laughs> Uh, I, that might. I'll, that I'll, I might. That I'll admit to. I might, but if I told you, then... <clears throat> then it wouldn't be a secret. It wouldn't be a secret. Yeah. I'd, I'd have to kill you. So. Yeah, right. Exactly. Um, so the thing I said was that I've been, I had thought of it on the way to the podcast recording, and that is that to be a Protestant is to be fundamentally 
anxious. And this is what I mean by that. Um, as a Protestant, nothing is really for sure. Nothing is set in stone. Uh, I feel like all of this, this goes all the way back to Martin Luther. Okay, so here's Luther, and he thinks, well, no, 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 uh, the Catholic Church is wrong, the Church is wrong, and, right. and it needs to change, something needs to change. And then come along comes, you know, John Calvin, right. and he says, well, no, Luther didn't have it quite right, and then you know, along comes uh, Wesley or somebody, right? right. Like, well, he didn't have that quite right, you know, and, uh, and that is, um, and I think you said something about this way back when, before we ever even talked about doing a podcast, you said basically... That's the position that every Protestant finds themselves in is, um, what do I think? Uh, you know, so am I doing it right? Am I doing this right? Am right. I, am, uh, is what I believe correct or, or does it need tweaking? You know, does it right. need overhauling? Uh, is, is my denomination right? Right. You know, um, is my particular church in that denomination, are they right? Right. Because they'll often have, my experience has been that a church in the denomination will, all, will also often have some kind of little thing that they think that's a little different, right? Right. And then what about my pastor? Right. I mean, he's the big shot, right? He's the guy. Uh, and then we get a new pastor and he doesn't quite think that. And then do I, do I, and then all the way down to me, do I agree with, with the right. denomination and the pastor and, and, and our church. And, and then if not here, we've said this several, this has come up several times. If not, do I need to find another church? Right. And so, and so there I am again, ultimately in charge of what I believe. Right. And the, 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 the myriad of, of matters that come up in Christianity, all the way from right. baptism to what kind of prayers you should pray and how you should right. think about this and all these little theological things. And it seems to me that this, this is a pillar of Protestantism. Yeah. You know, uh, it, in fact, it's like, it's, it's a right you have a right to it if you're a Protestant. Right. And, and, and it's, it's, it's like it's a necessity. It's a duty. Mm -hmm. I'm compelled to keep rethinking everything because right. that's what you do. You, that's, your that's your duty, you know? Right. Um, and, and now I'm, you know, so I look at the Catholic Church from the outside, and one of the things I see is that you don't get to do that. But, right. I mean, you, you know, uh, it's not like they never adjust their positions, but I'm not going to the Catholic. I don't go to the Catholic church and then they say, well, Ed, what do you think about, you know? Well, kind of, they never adjust their positions, but that's all. <laughs> well, okay. Uh, but, right. Yeah, There's uh, con the continuity. Well, so, right. I mean, you're, you're getting at something, you know, super important here, which is when you talk about Luther and Calvin and, and the various reformers and one of their principles was, um, you know, to do away with the papacy and the hierarchy, Right. And part of that was this logic of the priesthood of all believers, that mm -hmm. every, every Christian right. as, their, as an equal, um, is equally, um, you know, has, has an ordained uh, capacity. And the other thing that went with that was sola scriptura, mm -hmm. which is um, scripture alone. So every Christian uh, in basic Protestant doctrine has the capacity to look at the Bible and determine the truth because it's obvious from the Bible. This is actually right. a principle of Reformed theology called the per perspic per per 
excuse me, the perspicuity of Scripture, which basically is a fancy word that means that it's utterly clear. Like what Scripture teaches is totally clear, and every enli- and every uh, Christian, uh, as under the priest of all believers, can pick the Bible up, look for himself, and see the clear teaching of Scripture. And you're encouraged to. Right. And you have a, and to you, you, you're entitled to, you're, you're responsible for doing that. Now, you know, uh, so first of all, that's just disproved by empirical observation. Right. Right. So in other words, if the Bible is utterly clear and totally perspicuous, to use that fancy, you know, Calvinist word, if it's utterly perspicuous and clear, its teachings are unambiguous and everybody can look and see what they are. Well, then how come, how come uh, to your point, how come all the Protestants can't agree on right. anything? And, and in fact, uh, even among Reformed or Calvinist people, they can't agree. So, for example, some Protestants baptize children and some people have believer's baptism. There's a huge issue that they've right. never been able to settle. And they'll say, well, te- the teaching of Scripture is obvious. I, I-, I was, you know educated in a Calvinist seminary and we're like, well, the teaching that b- baptism should be for children, infant baptism is utterly clear, except right. for the, you know, Protestants down the street who say, well, it's not utterly clear to us. And so, you know, anyway, what, what in essence, partly the Reformation did is it wanted to get rid of the Pope and it made you your own Pope. Right. Right. And, and, and it's, it's, it's not a, I think a coincidence that the Reformation happened when sort of modern democracies were beginning mm. to emerge. And it wasn't quite exactly coextensive. The Reformation started, but the movements, and then by the 17th century and the 18th right. century, this was kind of full bore in the notion that people have a right to sort of vote for the truth or vote what they think. And, you know, we could get on the intellectual history of all this, uh, which we don't have to do now, but the whole notion that each in, in, of the Enlightenment, uh, and the, the Reformation predated the Enlightenment, but it was a precursor to the Enlightenment. Mm-hmm. The notion that each uh, enlightened person can simply look at the evidence and come to their own decisions. But as you say, that actually puts an enormous burden on you right? to determine what's true. Yeah, I'm anxious about it. And, right? and it causes anxiety. So, so let's, let's, I want to break this up back as really into two pieces. The one is a sort of doctrinal question of, you know, Sola Scriptura, priesthood of all believers versus the authority of the church. The one thing I want to say about that, and then I want to, and I want to drill down on the anxiety part. The, the thing I'd, I'd say about that is, does this sound, the way the Reformation uh, unfolded, where you have, you know, whatever it is, a thousand or 10,000 or 50,000 denominations and all these different flavors and stripes and endless schisms, and no guarantee of the truth and everybody, you know, it it reminds you of the book of Judges in the Old Testament when it says that in that time uh, there was no king in Israel uh, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. That the history of the Reformation or or, uh, of Protestantism is exactly that. There is no authority in the church. The church has no authority. And so everyone does what seems right to them. Right. Now, the question is, does this sound like what God's plan was? Did, in other words, God want to create confusion in when Christ gives the great commission to the apostles and says to go out into all nations, baptizing, uh, making disciples, baptizing them, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded, and right. I'm with you to the end of the age. 
was his intention to unleash them to go out and create this kind of schism and chaos? Because that doesn't sound like a plan of salvation to me. Um, and I think that the argument, part of the argument for the Catholic Church, aside from all of the other particulars, is that Catholicity, the notion that there should be a continuity of apostolic teaching, a continuity of the good deposit of faith that Christ gave to the apostles, a continuity throughout the generations of what the teachings of Christ are, that, that surely, in my opinion, partly what led me to the Catholic Church, is that surely that would be what God would want. Right. And that the Catholic Church, as Chesterton you know, says, is the one institution, in a sense, on earth that stands boldly and says, uh, th- this is the truth. Right. I and can... it's handed down with continuity and, and consistency. And it stands above and beyond all of the fashions and controversies mm-hmm. of any particular uh, century. And, and so this endless chaos, anxiety-inducing chaos about am I right, am I not right, which denomination should I belong to, which sub-denomination of, it, of which denomination was they split, and then which sub-sub-denomination, and then which, you know, congregation right. under pastor so-and-so, and there's a multitude of teachers and this and that, and I don't know what I'm supposed to do, but I'm supposed to find right. my own way through it all. That doesn't sound like God's plan of salvation. And, and so I found myself, one of the things that drove me down the road to Rome is looking for, uh, you know, like Chesterton said, the Catholic Church is the one thing that simply claims that it has the truth. Right. I can tell you what the Protestant answer to that is, is all of this is, well, the problem is all those people who don't see it the right way come to our church where we see it the right they're way. Wrong. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're all wrong. Yeah. They're all just wrong. I'm sitting with a friend recently, uh, a longtime friend, um, and he, uh, he's a Protestant, and he was arguing his case, and he said, well, see, the Catholic Church just sounds like a bunch of rules to me. A whole, a big, a big, well, a big, huge, he said, a big, huge uh, book of, of, of uh, they've, destruct, they've structured this, and then they've, they've, they've drilled down and structured that, and you've got this whole thing that they've made out of it. And he said, that's why I like, that's why I've belonged to a denominational church, a non-denominational church all my right. life is because we just believe what the Bible says. <laughs> and I thought, well, to him, um, that he, he's claiming that it's obvious. Right. It's, so it's, it's so obvious. I mean, it's just obvious. My pastor opens the word of God, looks at it faithfully. And uh, by the way, if, if we think that our pastor isn't doing that right, we'll fire him and find one that does. Right. So at the end of the day, uh, right, each man uh, determines or woman, each person determines for himself what it right. is that's true. And again, this kind of thing, like you say, I mean, I, look, if you look at even just, you know, the history of Protestant denominations. Um, so we started naming names in one of the earlier podcasts, right. but, you know, it, it, it's fascinating. So the Calvinists, right, come out of John Calvin in Geneva, and then they subdivide in the 16th century into two different kinds of flavors of Calvinists. And then in the 18th, 17th, 18th century, they subdivide and subdivide some more. And so now you have a multiplication of these different kinds of Calvinist and reformed denominations who can't agree with each other. And then they issue new creeds and statements and have synods, and then they subdivide and they subdivide. And so eventually 
In the 1800s, you have in the Netherlands, this sort of Dutch state Calvinist church, but there's a bunch of um, pastors and people who think that the that the main Dutch state Calvinist church is wrong. So they immigrate to America and form something called the Reformed Church of America. And they land in New York and Pella, Iowa, and a couple of these places. And, and then about 30, 40 years later, there's another group in the Netherlands that is upset about some other issues and they come to America and they find the first the set of Dutch immigrants that had come 30 or 40 years earlier and realize that those people are totally wrong about, you know, key <laughs> issues of worship and, uh, right. you know, this and this and this. And so they split off from the Reformed Church America and call themselves the Christian Reformed Church. Because see, right. those people are Reformed Church, but we're really the, the right. Christian Reformed Church. Right. And so anyway, I got ordained into the Christian Reformed Church. But even when I was in seminary, and we started subdividing over further issues of uh, biblical interpretation. So right. then what they did, they split out and they had the Orthodox Christian Reformed Church, which was distinguished from the regular Christian Reformed Church, right. which was distinguished. And so then now I have some friends that are in the Reformed Church, and they're splitting off to form the Alliance of Reformed Churches, which is a separate subdivision of 14 congregations who are now already showing some tensions and may sub... So, you know, like uh, Garrison Keillor in his classic book, Lake Wobegon, had this whole like funny chapter about this with Lutherans in Minnesota. And, you know, he goes through this whole history of these Lutheran denominations. And he said, you know, in the end, the one true church turns out to be 12 people sitting in a living room at three o'clock in the afternoon, like Wobegon. And right and, and right. everybody else in the world is wrong because we're the one true church because, you know, we rightly interpret the word of God, which is so perspicuous and obvious that it right. just leaps off the page at you. So, I mean, at some level, it's ridiculous. And, and honestly, I think that, you know, one of the, I think the major challenges to Protestants um, from the Catholic side is that you, it, I find it very difficult. I found it very difficult to defend right. this kind of, this kind of thing. When I was a, a, a Protestant and Catholics would challenge me, I had to, I had to work to try to find a good answer to right. that other than, well, yeah, 99% of the other Protestants are wrong, but me and, you know, four other little congregations right. are right. So, yeah, I mean, that kind of anxiety is put upon you in a sense structurally. I mean, right, what do we talk about, like structural racism or whatever? Right. But it's, it's sort of like structurally built in that you're responsible for figuring out what's right and discerning truth, which you should be able to do because when you open the Bible, it should leap clearly off the page to right. you and it should be obvious that everybody else is wrong. And it's, it's, it's weird and it is anxiety producing and it doesn't give you the sense that you're coming to the church uh, and to Holy Mother Church, which, you know, continues the teaching and holding the teaching of the apostles down through the, you know, the ages and the centuries. And, and I think that that's one of the most um, powerful arguments. You know, I know that you've, re- I've given you a lot of G.K. Chesterton to read. Right. I think one of the things we're going to be doing here really soon is uh, I think I'm going to invite you and Corey. We'll see if we can talk him into it and us doing a kind of a three-way conversation because I know that it was influential to him to read Chesterton's essay, Why I'm a Catholic, when he converted. Mm-hmm. And essentially his, his argument largely boils down to exactly that, right. that this chaos, this anxiety-producing chaos, that the Catholic Church is the one thing that says we have continuity with the teaching of the apostles. And, and lest 
<clears throat> if you're listening to this and you don't have that experience, lest you think that we're just sort of inventing the uh, like the like the, the Lake Wobegon, the, the twelve people in the living room thing. Right. I have lived through this. Okay, oh, yeah. when I was in the charismatic movement, I was in a church that had started out of nothing, and there were some uh, some healings and miracles and mm-hmm. things, and then pretty soon this congregation grew to about six or seven hundred people, and I was involved in it. Uh, after it, had, it was well on its way. And there were uh, two other big charismatic style churches. One was a um, Assembly of God mm-hmm. church, huge. And another was uh, just its, its own thing, but it was also huge and a lot bigger than our churches, our church. Uh, so we're talking about one church, the Assembly of God, that was probably four or 5,000 people minimum. And the other one was probably 2,500 and ours was like 700. And th- but I, w- I was in close to the center, right? Uh, I, knew, I knew a couple of the board members and whatever, elders. And so I was hearing from one of the elders, well, you know, they're not quite right over at us. The Assemblies of God is a great place. Don't get me wrong. It's a great place. But, but, they, but they, <laughs> they don't have this and that right. And this other place, which was started by one of ours, one of the right. people from our congregation, is not, that place is great too, but, you know. And then there's a lot of people in our church who really believe you know, uh, blah, 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 blah. But me and several of the other elders have been getting together. And this guy was saying to me, and you know, uh, we really, really, and and the, and the effect was that really it boiled down to about six of us, Mm -hmm. six or eight or 10 people, literally. And then maybe this is beginning of my, um, of it for me. This is many years ago. I took a trip to New York state, mm-hmm. just a, just a, on a lark. We went on a weekend. We just drove over there and thought, let's see how far we can get in, you know? Right. And, um, as I was driving, we were driving along. I thought the thought hit me. None of these, this in, in retrospect, this is so, I don't know. I can't believe how naive I was, but anyway, right. I, I'm riding along and I'm thinking none of these people here have heard of our church or who we are or anything. Right. And somehow God is going to have to bring them along somehow. Right. And then I thought, well, that can't be right. Right. That just can't be. I don't know what's right, but that can't be right. And maybe, and that was, man, that was 30 years ago. Yeah. Well, and and like you said, the way you framed this question is it it produces anxiety um, rather than certainty. And I I want to now kind of circle around to that because I was intrigued by you framing it in terms of anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll come back around to the, uh, the Chesterton essay and another thing, because, you know, he talks about the principal reason why he chose to become Catholic is because uh, the way he, he terms it in that essay is that the Catholic Church is the guardian of the truth. It, it's the only one that makes a legitimate claim to being the guardian of the truth. But let, let's, let's talk about the anxiety, the psychological anxiety for a second that comes with that. Um, you know, first of all, I, I think that some of that anxiety is natural, right? It's not, right. It's not always good, but it's normal, right? Because we're, we're just naturally questioning and anxious about a lot of things, right? You know, we, uh, we worry about the state of our relationships with our family members or our coworkers. We worry that our old furnace is going to give out this winter. We worry, we're terrified of speaking in public. We're right. afraid we might lose our job in the next round of layoffs, right? It, to be human is to some degree to have uh, anxiety and worry about those things. And Jesus acknowledges that in some of his right. parables and, and teachings. And, but secondly, doubt. Doubt 
is the opposite of faith, right? I mean, you can be anxious about things, but when anxiety leads to doubt, doubt is the opposite. Faith is, uh, Hebrews tells us, the book of Hebrews tells us, is certainty of the things that we hope for. And, and doubt comes in a lot of different flavors. Part of it, you know, we think of doubt as in terms of doubting God's existence. But I think what most of us think of when we think of a, a crisis of faith or whatever, we, we, we cannot doubt God's existence. Like some people doubt manifest itself. I don't, know, I don't know if I believe in God. Other people go, well, I believe in God. I just don't know that I'm saved. Right. Right. Because there's all these choices and I don't know, you right. know, how do I know that I'm saved? And, uh, and so I, I think that the Bible kind of makes it clear to us that we're wired that way. And, and I think that God addresses that in the plan of salvation, because I think he, he channels the plan of salvation through specific touch points mm-hmm. um, through specific uh, times and places and objects and actions. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I think the whole Bible, the entire uh, Bible from beginning to end is the story of how God works with, because we're, we're these kinds of hybrid creatures. C.S. Lewis called us amphibians. We are spiritual beings. Mm-hmm. We have a, a, a spiritual soul, but we're also material, physical beings, and we live in a material universe, and we have this hybrid nature, and truth partly needs to be conveyed to us in ways that are tangible, Mm -hmm. okay? And I'm going to get back to the Protestant side on this in a second, because if you preview, I think that Protestantism does away with a lot of the tangible assurances of the faith. Mm. It renders it all intellectual and emotional. So here's what I mean. Let's, let's consider an example. A lot of spiritual realities are signified by a sign. So when you proposed to your wife, you gave her an engagement ring, right? When you got married, you held a wedding ceremony, right? Right. And exchanged vows. Um, when you graduate from high school or college, you, you get a diploma and wear a funny hat, right. have a ceremony, right? And get to walk down an aisle and have a big party. If you join the military, you get a uniform. If you're brave on the battlefield, they hang a medal on your uniform, right? Um, all of these are tangible signs of sort of intangible truths, right? Right. And I think that God knows we need tangible moments and places and times and places and actions, oftentimes associated with objects, to signify to us. To or anchor ourselves to, to it. anchor ourselves to. And, and really, the actual technical Greek term uh, that, that's used in the New Testament is there's signs. So, so in the Gospel of John, there's, these are signs. There's actually right. seven signs that are given in the Gospel of John. And that, the, the word sign is an icon. It's a representation, right. a physical, tangible representation of an eternal spiritual truth. You with me? Mm-hmm. Okay. And the whole old, the whole Bible beginning to end is full of this stuff. So you start off and in the garden of Eden, there's this fruit and the fruit is a tangible sign of obedience. Mm -hmm. If they, if they eat of it, they disobey. If they don't eat it, they don't, you know, their disobedience isn't just like some intellectual disobedience. They actually pluck, you know, reach out a hand, pluck the fruit and bite it. Right. And then after that, Cain and Abel are to bring offerings and you can bring you the right offering or the wrong offering, right? right? Uh, Noah's Ark is a sign of obedience. Um, uh, And afterwards, when Noah lands, the Ark 
he gets out and he makes a sacrifice. And God gives a rainbow in the sky as a sign and a promise, right? Abraham uh, sacrifices cattle, you know, to make the covenant. Uh, And he almost sacrifices Isaac to show obedience. Um, There's the right of circumcision given. Right. Uh, There is the sacrifices of Melchizedek with with Abram. Uh, Lot's wife is told not to turn backward and look at um, Sodom. Uh, the blood of the, pa- the, the, uh, the Passover with, uh, when they left Egypt, they were to smear the blood of the lambs on the door lintel to, to mark and protect. Mm-hmm. Um, when they got to Mount Sinai, there were the tablets of the law that were written, right? And there was the, there was a sign of disobedience and they made a golden calf. Um, on and on and on the tabernacle and the Ark of the covenant and sure. all the liturgies and festivals and sacrifices of God that are prescribed in the Pentateuch, the building of the temple. Uh, the incense and the priestly garments and the objects and acts of worship. And all of that, by the way, read in the book of Psalms, is pleasing, was pleasing to the Lord and what he mm-hmm. prescribed. Now, I can already anticipate some Protestant who's listening goes, that's all Old Testament, right? Jesus right. did away with all of that. So hold on. Right. Hold on a second. I'm going to cut the legs out from under any Protestant who says that, okay? Okay. Because the New Testament begins with signs. The first thing that happens in the New Testament is it begins with a man named John the Baptist, and he's the herald of the new covenant. What does he do to issue the new covenant? Call people to come down to the Jordan River and be baptized in repentance right. and penance right. to bring in you know, the new age. And then Jesus, the greatest sign God ever gave was the incarnation. I'm going to take, I myself is going to incarnate myself. I'm going to enflesh myself. Right. And that is a sign a tangible, uh, visible encounter with right. us in this tangible physical universe of an eternal reality, okay? Um, and then what does Jesus do? He does signs and wonders. Well, he, he himself is baptized. Why was Jesus baptized by John? He was sinless because he says it is pleasing and right to go through with these signs. And then Jesus, he does all these signs, right? He right. heals people, for example, but he often does it with tangible signs. We know from when the centurion's daughter is sick that Jesus uh, uh, can simply, or centurion's uh, servant is sick, that he can simply heal somebody by a command. Jesus doesn't have to lay hands on people, but he lays hands on people. Um, well, there's one blind man that comes to Jesus and wants to see, and so Jesus spits in the dirt, makes a paste, and rubs it in his eyes. Why did he do that? He didn't have to do that. Right. It's a f- tangible way. God works through these tangible moments and actions. Ten lepers come to Jesus. Heal us. He says, go present yourself to the priests in the temple. And on their way, they're healed. Right. Uh, people, a woman touches Jesus's cloak. When he wants to raise Lazarus, he moves the stone and shouts out in a loud voice. He didn't have to do that. Right. He could just raise Lazarus from 100 miles away. Right. But he does these things, right? He multiplies loaves and fishes to feed the crowds. He lays hands on people, right? He, he uh, now allows a sinful woman to anoint him for his burial mm-hmm. and wash his feet. He washes the feet of the disciples at the Last Supper. He right. gives them the Last Supper yeah, and says, do this. That's the one I was thinking of. Right? Yeah. And, and then reality is he doesn't have to do any of this. But he, 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 tra- he gives these tangible signs. I'm calling them uh, times and places of encounter with spiritual truths that often have actions and symbols. And, and objects associated with them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the apostles continue that. Peter uh, uh, lays hands on people. 
uh, crowds touch Peter's cloak or are healed by a shadow. Paul commands that there be laying on of hands. Book of James says to the pastors, when somebody is sick, go and anoint them with oil. Now, why am I saying all of this? Okay? Here's why. Let's answer your question about anxiety or address that. I think for the, for the most part, the Protestant Reformation did away with most of the sacraments and sacramentals and tangible devotions of the yeah. Catholic Church, which were a thoroughly biblical principle, as I just pointed out. Right. They're an incarnational principle. Um, instead, what it said is you have eternal assurance of faith because you read the Bible and know that it's true. Right. And it replaced all of those tangible sacramental signs and tangible devotions and tangible points of encounter with God for Bible reading right. Right. or preaching and listening to the Bible and then deciding that that makes sense because it's obvious. And, and, and as you point out, that doesn't always work because I sit there and I go, I don't know, am I right with God or not? Right. Am I saved or right. not? And, and I think that the sacraments and to a lesser degree, the sacramental devotions and liturgies of the Catholic church, they continue that that biblical and ancient Christian principle of giving us these, these points of contact, these checkpoints, these intersections, um, you know, where, where grace and salvation is given to us. So the Protestant who argues that salvation is by, you know, that Catholics believe in salvation by works just isn't listening to what I'm saying. We don't earn salvation any more than the people that Jesus healed, the blind people, earned the healing. But God works through these checkpoints, these moments, these mm-hmm. encounters. And it's, it's not us manipulating God through magic. It's God giving us signs of right. grace. Right. So let me put this in practical terms because, you know, when you're saying, well, if I'm a Protestant, I, I just have this anxiety because I, I read the Bible and I don't know if I've got it right. And then I don't know if I'm saved and if right. I'm, you know, right. So here's this. Here's what I know as a Catholic now. I've been baptized. I have, conf- I have publicly confirmed my faith in Christ. I have been sacramentally married. I r- periodically, regularly reaffirm my faith, uh, and God reaffirms my salvation when I attend Mass and receive his body and blood in the Eucharist. Mm-hmm. When I sin, I confess my sins to a priest who's acting in the person of Christ, and he absolves me, ensures me of forgiveness, and then he gives me a penance to do, not that earns my forgiveness, but that helps me uh, to grow. Mm-hmm. Um, in discipleship. Um, along the way, I worship and I pray and I do various acts of devotion that the church has set aside, mm-hmm. um, you know, various prayers and things that I can do to devote myself. When I approach death, a priest is going to come and anoint me with oil, uh, which the epistle of James commands pastors of the church to do. And, and then he'll give me the Eucharist one last time, which the church calls by the Latin word viaticum, which it means bread for the journey mm-hmm. into the next life so that I can die what the church calls a good death. And so all that natural anxiety that I would have or did have as a Protestant is sort of quieted by knowing that God meets me at all these times and places and points and, 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 and tangible connections and actions, and that he holds my hand through the journey of life through them. Right. And through these signs and my obedience to meet him at these, at these, these appointed, these appointments of grace. Right. And, and I know that I've believed and I've obeyed my Lord. And I've been, not only that I had faith, which a Protestant tells me 
a proselytism that I have, but I, that I've been faithful. Right. And, and, and I have assurance that he will be faithful to me. So, so Protestantism sort of strips me of all of right. those ways right. that I tangibly meet God and have signs and assurance of grace. Mm-hmm. And it replaces it with read the Bible. And if you're still doubting, read the Bible more. Right. And if you're still doubting, you're probably not reading the Bible right. enough and read and reflect on the Bible. And, and if I hear three different Bible teachers who tell me three different things, then I'm to pray and read the Bible and discern what, and I, I don't, right. I don't, I don't ever know, but I do believe that the apostles have handed down the good deposit of faith to Holy Mother Church and hand, Holy Mother Church has continued that incarnational biblical principle mm-hmm. of giving me these kind of tangible connection points with God right. that are often manifested through objects and actions of obedience. And that if I, in true faith, of course, um, accept those and, 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 and meet God where he asks me to meet him, mm-hmm. I have assurance of salvation. Right. And the anxiety you know, I, I went to confession the other day and, um, you know, you and I've talked about that Chester. I think we did, we did a podcast episode about confession and Chester has that, that line where he says, when you walk out of the confessional, you're five minutes old. Right. And I always think of that line when I walk out, you know, I got, I walked out, got my car, I did my penance, walked out out of my car. And then, um, you know, I'm pulling out of the parking right. lot. And I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm five minutes old. I, I feel I, I, yeah. I've done what asked God, God told me to come and confess my sin. And I did. And I, and, and, and I, and I, act, and I, I feel like, you know, God met me right? and I've done what he's asked me to do. Um, and then I pulled out into traffic and then some guy tried to cut me off and, right. and I, you know, and then I maybe wasn't right. happy with that and I had Mickey, you turn back and right. another confession. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, but the point is, is that, right. Uh, it's meeting God at those times and places and having that sense of confidence in the um, authority mm-hmm. of Holy Mother Church and the teaching of the apostles handled down through it and confidence in the sacraments and the sacramental life mm-hmm. and knowing that if I have true faith and, and meet God in that, that there's this enormous peace that comes with Catholicism that I never felt in Protestantism. One of the... Uh... That was think, a long answer to a short question. One of the things, well, it's a good answer. One of the things that appeals to me about Catholicism is that they're telling me that I can know, okay? And in, in the Protestant world, not knowing is almost kind of uh, uh, noble. You know what I mean? No. Uh, um, okay. Mean? It's, it's um, uh, C.S. Lewis talked about this. He said something about, I can't remember where, where it was, where I read it, but... Uh, that questions should be for answers. Right. And that endlessly questioning oh, yeah. feels noble. Oh, I'm on a quest. I'm on a journey, of, you know, yeah. and, and it's just so noble to be on a journey and a quest. But if you found the answer and you passed by it because the journey was more fun or it was, a, it's, it ends up being sort of uh, a selfish way of avoiding change. So St. Anselm. His principle was faith seeks understanding. So 
that's different than being on an endless quest, uncertain quest for the truth. Right. Uh, what Anselm said, deeply Catholic principle, is um, because I have faith, I want to go, I want to know more. I want to go deeper. I want to understand more. And so that's, in Latin, it was faith. Faith seeks understanding. And so I, I try to learn. I try to understand. I discern. But that's not wandering around in the dark, bumping into things. Right. I have the light of faith and I have people, who, the, all those who have come before me, illuminating the, illuminating the path and inviting me to come, you know, use a phrase from C.S. Lewis, Chronicles of Narnia, to go higher up and deeper in. Right. Well, here's how it works out is that anybody can make you feel guilty if you're a Protestant. Yeah. Okay. Anybody, uh, churches are filled with people who feel like, and oh my gosh, I've seen this all my life. People, Protestant churches are filled with people who feel like they just can't do enough for God. They're unsettled. They're anxious. And they end up in positions of leadership. And everybody thinks these people, I'm not talking about the ones who the pastors, but you know, in the church, churches I've been in that were sort of out on, out on their own, they were, uh, they were always, um, there was always somebody who was just like a super Christian. And I would get, I would start to get the feeling that they weren't, that they were anxious about how much they were doing. Well, I mean, I, I, I felt that, you know, um, and as I got closer to Catholicism and I realized that, you know, there was a fork in the road choice that I had to make. What I felt was that the way that I would know that I was saved is I would feel, according to Hebrews, you know, I'd quote Hebrews and say, well, faith is confidence and assurance. Right. And if I had doubts, then it meant that maybe I didn't have faith. Yeah. So I needed to pray harder, read scripture more, memorize more scripture. And, and what I, the phrase that I kind of being in a frame in my own mind was that it felt like, you know, the, the Protestants would always criticize the Catholics for um, having a, a theology of works. But I felt like it was a, the Protestant theology was a, a, a theology of emotional or intellectual works. Right. And I don't mean intellectual, like, you know, deep theological pursuits, but I sort of had to kind of keep convincing myself, keep, right. keep feeling it. I, yes. I had to feel yes. it. And when I didn't feel it, right. I mean, right. if I didn't feel it because it doesn't give me all of those tangible points, I, I can go to mass and not feel it. Right. But I was obedient and went to mass and took the body and blood of Christ. You know, I can have trepidation going into the confessional. I can do this. But there's something that God, because he makes a concession of mercy to me as a, as a, as a tangible creature living right. in a, with a spiritual soul, but who lives in a material world, he gives me these, again, these, these times and places right. where I can encounter him and know that I've had grace. I need those things to anchor myself to yeah. starting when I was a little kid in the Baptist church, they would, they would, they would, you know, somebody would get up and, and, um, uh, tell us how, what rotten people we were and right. how we all needed to, to what, are we, what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do? Yeah. 
They, you know, they're, they're, they're I, you know, they demanded, they pled, they challenged, they bullied. How many altar calls do I have to come down? Yes, exactly. What that's exactly where I'm going with this. I, I'm a mediocre Christian, or worse, and the only way to get out is to grovel and beg uh, for ways to make it right. And I am to the point. I have been at this point for quite a while now, a number of years. Uh, I'm not going to listen to that. I'm yeah. not going to. I'm, I'm enough. I'm all done with that. Um, I've groveled enough and seen my sin enough. Yeah. I'm interested in moving past that. And I don't want to periodically be pulled back down and then start over. I'd like to move on. Yeah. Uh, and that doesn't, you know, th- this, this church that my wife and I are, are uh, attending sometimes right now, the, the, the pastor, who's a great guy, and I really respect him, he was just saying that. The last time I heard him preach was, you got to get out in the woods and lay on your face, and you gotta, you gotta, if you're not digging up handfuls of dirt and, and begging God for, you know, telling God what a, what a horrible sinner you are, what a wretch you are, then, then you know, you, you got you you know, you to do that once in a while to make sure. And I'm, and I'm sitting there thinking— I don't well, even know what that means. Yeah, and I'm not—and I'm, and I'm sitting there thinking—and maybe I'm not saying it very well, but, you know— well, he I'm sure he said it better, but I don't know, I don't know what it means. But I— but I sat there thinking, I'm, I'm not going to do that. that. I would be manufacturing that if I did. Yeah. Well, or it's like, you know, we're here in the worship team because you've been on the worship team. And, the, you know, where's the, the praise band leader stands up there and says with a wireless mic and says, ah, we just feel the spirit here. We right. know you're saved because you just feel it's like singing the song one more time. And, you know, I, and the thing is, it's like, you know, I had some things that I needed to confess. And so the other day I, right. I, I you know, went to reconciliation and I, you know, went right. in and I had, I did my examination of conscience right. in my prayer book. And I walked through the things and said, where do I, have I you know, come short with God. Right. And I, I, you know, I just make a little, I actually have a, in my phone, I have a little notes app mm-hmm. with a little locked note and I write down my Right. examination of conscience and I go in and I turn on my phone in the confessional and I right. go, here's my bullet, but I got, you know, yeah. how much time do you have father? And I yeah, go down yeah. my little bullet points. Right. And then I made the act of contrition, which mm-hmm. is a little prayer that you say that I'm, you know, truly sorry for my sins and, you know, et cetera, right. et cetera. And I, with the God's help resolved to never do these things again, the pre peace pronounced absolution and, you know, so on and so forth. And you go, okay, I didn't go out in the woods and, you know, uh, lay naked in the dirt and cry right. into the night. I mean, that just sounds weird you know i yeah i'm exhausted from all of all of that yeah. I'm, and i'm all done i'm, I'm just all yeah. done i feel like i feel like i'm okay yeah uh in that sense you know what i mean i'd like yeah. to move on so okay well there it is there you go well you know you meet god at the places and the times and the places that he's appointed for the meetings right all right good uh, stuff all right thanks Ed. okay bye Thank you for listening. My name is Greg Smith. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, would you please hit the like and subscribe buttons wherever you get your podcasts? And please share it with others. And if you're curious about the Catholic worldview and faith, the Church and its saints, or Catholic history, culture, and art, then visit consideringcatholicism.com. And email me to let me know what you think. Greg at consideringcatholicism.com dot com.